Hi, hello, and welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us for On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. My name is Barry Botino, and I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health. With me, as always, are my trusty colleagues and fellow associate editors, Alan Ferguson, the pride of Memphis, Tennessee, and Kevin Drewley, who hails from the great city of St. Louis, Missouri. This is episode 18, and the calendar has turned to August. That means we're just two months away from being back in person together in Orlando for the National Safety Council's Congress and Expo. Having not seen my colleagues for more than 18 months, other than Zoom, of course, we've got a lot of catching up to do. Uh, we're currently working on plans to take the On the Safe Side podcast on the road in October, but more details on that to come later. If you'd like to join us and your fellow safety pros in Orlando, you can learn more about our event and register online at congress.nsc.org. To keep up with all the latest news from around the safety world, please check out our website. We're at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. We also have a new online home for our sister publication, Family Safety and Health. You can find it at safetyandhealthmagazine.com family to learn more about safety away from work. During this month's episode of the podcast, you'll hear about safety incentives in our deep dive segment with Alan, and transportation and workplace safety professional Brian Hammer will join us to talk about safety on the roadways now that more workers are back behind the wheel as workplaces open up again. And of course, stay tuned for our pop quiz, which is all about hitting the highways for those memorable summer road trips. Is everybody ready? Well, let's get this episode in gear. Each month here at On the Safe Side, we take an in-depth look into a feature story from the pages of Safety and Health magazine, and we call that our Deep Dive segment. This month, we'll be talking to Alan about his story on safety incentives. Alan's feature article in our August issue of the magazine discusses the pros and cons of incentive programs based on discussions with several worker safety experts, along with also explaining OSHA's stance on this issue. So, Alan, could you jump in the water and take us on your deep dive this month? Yes, I can, and thank you very much, Barry. First, I'm going to work a little backward from the way the story's laid out in the magazine and, and talk about, as you mentioned, kind of OSHA's evolving stance on incentive programs. So during the Obama administration, there was a faction within OSHA that felt incentive programs were tied to behavior-based safety, or, or BBS, which unions and others contend blame the worker instead of focusing on hazards in the workplace. And that came from talking with a couple of former OSHA officials. And that's at least in part of the reason why OSHA issued a memo in 2012 that stated, among other things, if an incentive is great enough and its loss dissuades, quote unquote, reasonable workers from reporting injuries, that's a violation of record keeping rules. And let's say someone is among a group of coworkers who are in the running to win a prize. If they don't have an injury in the next month and then he or she gets hurt on the last day of the month, how likely are they going to report that injury and ruin that prize for everyone? The answer is probably not very likely. Again, that's at least in part why OSHA put out that memo. By the way, those kind of incentive programs that I mentioned are typically called rate-based programs. Now, some people interpreted that memo as OSHA not allowing any incentive programs, and the agency clarified that stance in 2016 with another memo. 
OSHA stated it doesn't prohibit safety incentive programs, but if a company withholds or takes away a reward because of a reported injury, that would quote unquote likely violate uh, 1904.35B14 in the improved tracking of workplace injuries and illnesses final rule. And so next we we kind of move ahead to 2018 and we get another OSHA memo. And this one states that race-based programs are permissible, quote, as long as they are not implemented in a manner that discourages reporting. And employers can take away a prize or bonus in a rate-based program if someone reports an injury, quote, as long as the employer has implemented adequate precautions to ensure that employees feel free to report an injury or illness. The memo also states an employer could avoid any inadvertent deterrence in a rate-based program by creating a workplace culture that emphasizes safety. And to me, this is frankly kind of confusing. I would think that taking away any incentive would discourage injury reporting on its face, but this is still OSHA policy as of this recording date, and I was told that OSHA is looking into this So that stance could change, uh, again, under this administration. It's not quite clear when that would happen at this point, so we'll see. Something that didn't make it into the story is how OSHA might find out an incentive program is discouraging injury reporting, and that's typically through interviews with workers during an inspection or from complaints. The good news for the agency is many companies have moved away from rate-based incentive program. That's in part because they sent around a lagging indicator or lagging indicators And they focus on results and not process. And I'll use the baseball analogy here because even the worst team will win 40 to 60-ish games during a 162-game season. That team undoubtedly has a broken process at some level or levels in the organization, but they have some positive results from time to time. And I imagine at certain points in a season, fans of that team, let's say Cubs fans, can interpret those positive results as, hey, we're doing well or, hey, we're on track. Well, we all know how that goes. You get your hopes up because your team has a six or you know eight game win streak in May, but come September, they're 20 games out of first. Again, so it's typically better to focus an incentive program on the process of safety or leading indicators instead of results and lagging indicators. And examples of rewarding employees for that process are recognizing hazards or unsafe working conditions, reporting near misses, rewarding for them serving on safety committees, or rewarding for submitting safety suggestions. Now, Alan, what are some other things that employers can do to help ensure more effective incentive programs? So one of the first pieces of advice in the story is that it really helps to have an established safety culture before starting an incentive program. One expert told me if you don't have that in place, an incentive program can be met with some mistrust from the employees. Either they'll think the company is not uh, walking the walk and is just talking a good game, or this is a surreptitious attempt by the employer to limit injury reporting, especially if it's a rate-based program. Some of the other advice, don't make your program overcomplicated. Keep it simple and straightforward. Communicate all ground rules to employees and give feedback to workers on their progress about once a month. And the company can also implement short-term recognition periods and should reward in as close to near time as possible. And that comes from safety incentive program provider CA Short. On its website, that company states, quote, humans are driven by immediate gratification. The sooner you can reward employees for taking positive action, the bigger impact you will have. Bob Lapidus, a retired safety consultant who has written on this subject, says to reward employees with enthusiasm in front of peers 
on organizational time and preferably as a planned event. Both Lapidus and CA Short agree that if one employee can win a main award, a company should set up its program so other employees can receive meaningful recognition for achieving individual goals. Along with top-down recognition from management to employees, companies can provide a way for workers to recognize each other as well. And if you do an incentive program over multiple years, Lapidus says you want to make sure that that program doesn't go stale. And you have to change it up from time to time. That includes the reward. Carl Potter said in effect, and I'm paraphrasing here, if you give employees a dollar one year, they'll want two the next. And I think that illustrates the, uh, the concept pretty well. Alan, you just mentioned meaningful recognition. How do organizations figure out what is a quote unquote meaningful reward to their workers? Well, this might be a pretty obvious answer to some people, but you just have to ask. It's a good practice to survey your workforce to see what they find meaningful. And that can be time off from work, that can be dinners or or tickets to sporting events or the like. Those kind of meaningful awards can also help get spouses, children, or family involved and perhaps further motivate an employee. You also can have items that help bring people together as a group or department, like framed certificates, plaques, jackets, or hats that have a department name or a list of fellow team members on them, for example. Well, Alan, we thank you so much for your uh, interesting and unique feature on this topic. Folks, if you want to read more about safety incentives and other news from around the safety world, please check out the August issue of Safety and Health Magazine to check out Alan's story or visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. If you're listening to this podcast, we're pretty sure you like staying safe on the job and keeping others safe as well. We're also pretty sure that you want to stay safe and healthy when you're away from work. And we have a great way to help you out. It's Family Safety and Health Magazine from the makers of the award-winning Safety and Health Magazine. Family Safety and Health has tips and advice on topics from the home to the roadway and from your local parks and recreation areas to your medicine cabinet. Visit our new website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash family, or call 800-621-7619 to learn how you can get a subscription for yourself, your coworkers, your friends, and your family. Remember, that's Family Safety and Health, brought to you by the team that brings you Safety and Health magazine each month. Well, we surely could ask our guest for this month's edition of Five Questions with how many times he's heard the phrase, it's hammer time, upon entering a room or preparing to speak. But for now, we'll merely add to the ledger. Brian Hammer joins us for this episode to discuss how safety professionals can be safe on the roads as commuting to and from work grows more commonplace again. Special shout out, by the way, if you're listening to us while safely commuting. Brian is a senior risk management consultant at Nationwide and former transportation practice administrator for the American Society of Safety Professionals. His current responsibilities include serving as a member of the ANSI Z15.1 Safe Motor Vehicle Standard Committee and ASSP ANSI Z15.3 Automated Vehicle Committee. Brian also has 20 years experience as a law enforcement officer and his specialties include defensive driving, OSHA regulations, and DOT regulations. Welcome, Brian, and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Our pleasure. As we stated, we're we're seeing more organizations returning to the workplace as the pandemic seems to wane. So what are some things people need to watch out for on the road as they get reacclimated to commuting? Well, we have a term in transportation that we call journey management, which basically means you plan the entire trip, even if it's a trip to the grocery store. Uh, So as people get back to work and have to drive to work rather than working from home, it's very important that they do similar steps uh, as taking a long vacation, which is certainly, you know, inspect your vehicle, make sure it's good to go, Uh, make sure your tires and your oil is in good shape, your battery is good to go. My wife's car's battery 
a diet as it sat in the garage for over a month. You want to make sure your car is in, in good shape. You also want to make sure your car is properly fueled. Uh, you'll start seeing some spot gas shortages uh, due to the fact that the uh, fuel refiners and that are having difficulty hiring truck drivers to get the fuel to the gas stations. And some gas stations are having work shortages, so they're not open as long as they used to be. My, my local gas station cut back its hours uh, based on the fact that it couldn't find help. So you want to make sure your, your vehicle is fully fueled for that trip to work. If you're traveling in an urban area where you've got a, a toll transponder, make sure it's up to date. If you've been months, uh, you know, six, seven months uh, not driving, uh, your credit card may have expired on that. So you want to make sure it's up to date. Uh, review your normal work trip to make sure that there's no road construction. Road construction continued even during the pandemic. So as you might start out on that trip to work and it's been a while since you've been there, you may have some road construction that you need to attend with. Uh, and then once you get to work, your work may not provide parking. You may have had to. You find your parking, and that may have changed since you've last been there. So make sure you have parking space available. And if you if your work does provide parking, your pass may not be currently valid. So make sure that your your badge does open up your access to your your workplace parking spot. Well, Brian, as we know, cell phones are pretty much ubiquitous and such a big part of our everyday lives. What can drivers do to avoid the temptation of using a cell phone while driving? Well, the, the simple answer is simply put your phone on Do Not Disturb. Uh, every phone has that ability. And if you put it on Do Not Disturb, a couple things happen. First of all, your phone doesn't ring, so you're not tempted to answer it. And secondly, it sends a message to those people who are calling you that you intend not to answer your phone. So that kind of sends them a message not to call you during your regular commute. Another suggestion is, uh, you know, at this point, uh, if you're not having to charge your phone, put it in your purse, put it in your, your pocket. That way, you know, during a hard break situation, it doesn't fly on the floor and you reach for it. Uh, But simply putting it on do not disturb is obviously the best solution. Uh, It helps you keep honest about not answering your phone or looking at it while driving. So speaking of cell phones, uh, numerous employers have installed policies banning employee use of handheld or hands-free devices while driving. Uh, Where might an organization begin to get such a program running, especially now in a hybrid work landscape? Well, it's very important that you know the laws regarding cell phone use in your area because they differ uh, depending on where you're at. And they actually differ on the types of vehicle you drive. Obviously, commercial motor vehicles have different regulations than non-commercial motor vehicles. The ASSP ANSI Z15 standard actually has some examples of cell phone policies in there that you can copy. Uh, Your lost control services at your insurance carriers also help provide you uh, with some of those. So it's a great place to get started in an effort to develop a policy against utilizing uh, cell phones. Carpooling or ride-hailing services, as well as public transportation, are other popular means for commuting. What are some tips riders should know to stay safe? Well, the first thing you need to realize is a lot of ride-hailing services are having difficulty maintaining the number of providers that are necessary. So you may have a a, a longer wait for those um, services to provide that transportation to you. If you're utilizing public transportation, understand that you know certainly the, the local requirements uh, such as mask wearing may still be there. So you want to make sure you're you know, prepared to do that if, if necessary. Uh, know that those providers have, have taken action to make sure that their, their buses and their trains are clean. So that is a, a good thing. Those actions occurred early on during the, the pandemic. So you should feel safe uh, that they are taking those precautions. Also probably realize that it, it places for like train stations and bus stations, there are probably fewer people at those locations than there used to be. So there could be some, you know, disadvantages to that in the, in the sense of there could be higher crime rates. So you just want to be more aware of your surroundings whenever you're standing around a, a bus stop or a train stop. 
uh, in that respect, may provide you some more seats on the bus or the train, but it certainly is a little less uh, uh, safe in that respect. You want to make sure you're aware of your surroundings. Brian, you're also a part of a number of committees for ASSP and ANSI standards that concern our discussion today. What emerging topics and trends related to safe motor vehicles and automated vehicles can you share with our listeners? Well, the ASSP and ANSI uh, issued a technical report on autonomous vehicles. And while we sometimes think that autonomous vehicles are still years off, and and they may be, we are driving vehicles that have autonomous technologies in them. And it's extremely important that we understand as drivers how they work. So it's important uh, that we we know what they are and how they work so we can best utilize those safety features that the cars provide us. Uh, The the technical report that we developed kind of helps train companies to understand uh, what those are and, and to make sure that they educate their employees who are driving those company vehicles on those safety features. But the same thing goes with our own personal vehicles. Many of us are buying vehicles that have what we call level three technology or maybe even, you know, types of level four technology that allows us to have less attention to that vehicle, even though technically we still have to be at that wheel. It's extremely important when we know how that technology reacts. If you put somebody in a vehicle that's never, for instance, ever uh, driven a a vehicle that has lane assist and the the car actually steers itself back into the lane, they may feel that tug on that steering wheel just a little discouraging. So you want to make sure that you understand how those technologies are operating in the vehicles that you drive. If you are renting a vehicle or if you're driving a new company vehicle, you make sure you know how those operate and what they are so you can best be prepared for them. Telematics is another issue. Companies are putting telematics in their vehicles to monitor the way their employees are driving. Of course, we have user-based insurance where insurance companies are giving you a discount on on your insurance based on how you drive. So that information is certainly out there and available to make sure that we are better drivers. Well, Brian, we appreciate you sharing your knowledge and expertise with our listeners. I know you covered a lot of ground today. Uh, We thank you for everything you do for worker safety and health. And it was a pleasure to have you with us on the safe side. It was a pleasure being with you. And yes, I've heard hammer time more than a few times. We, We thought so. We appreciate you bearing with one more. Thank you very much. Well, summer to many of us means hitting the road. From weekend getaways to long-distance journeys, summer driving vacations can be quite memorable. Uh, My father's love of driving meant that our family road trips as as a kid uh, stretched from Chicago to Arizona and to Wyoming uh, when I was growing up. This month in our pop quiz segment, we want to share our favorite summer road trips. And I'll uh, kick things off here. About four years ago, uh, my wife and my daughters and I uh, jumped in the car and drove to South Dakota. Um, which is really a part of the country I've never been to before. And one cool thing we did was we stayed in kind of a central location uh, near Mount Rushmore and basically just did day trips. We did the Black Hills, we did Mount Rushmore, we did Devil's Tower. And just um, seeing places like Devil's Tower and Mount Rushmore uh, with your own eyes is uh, pretty spectacular. Uh, So it's definitely a trip I will never forget. I would say my dream trip, uh, if I had the opportunity, and I've always talked about this, is to fly to Los Angeles and rent a car and drive Route 66 from Los Angeles all the way back to Chicago, uh, which I would really hope to do one day. Alan, how about you? Yeah, I was just trying to think back to the road trips we took as family. Most of the the car drives that or the drives that we took... um, involved visiting family and there was one particular memorable trip where we went through a blizzard and we were stuck um, outside of Birmingham in standstill traffic where we even got out and 
through snow at each other. This was in the 1990s. But I, I'll go with a, an impromptu trip that my mom and brother and I took to Huntsville, Alabama. Um, we were we uh, went to a Huntsville Stars game against our hometown team, the Memphis Chicks. That's the AA, the, what used to be called the Southern League. And we also uh, went to the Space Center. I think if I had a dream trip in my head, it would be driving to a uh, Yellowstone. What about you, Kevin? I also, uh, although my, my wife and I like to, to travel and we're recording this just a day or so removed from a, a recent road trip, I go back to the trips we took uh, growing up too. And one of them, it culminated um, in seeing my brother who was stationed in the Navy at the time and the the ship, it was a guided missile destroyer they were on, had a family day cruise where they took everybody out and showed you what the what the ship could do and, and that kind of stuff. Nothing too dangerous, but there was a little bit of ooing and eyeing, as I recall. But in between St. Louis and Virginia Beach, we made quite a few stops, and pretty much every one of them were memorable. We, uh, we'd seen some good family friends outside Cincinnati. I don't think the Reds were in town. I was racking my brain for that, but I know there have been times we went there and, and saw a ball game at Old Riverfront Stadium. But just good, good hanging out and, and swimming and grilling. And then from there, we made a stop in Canton, Ohio for, for the Professional Football Hall of Fame. Then kind of made our way just doing a little bit of a, you know, northeast and then coming back south to Virginia. I remember we stopped at the, the Chocolate Factory, did the tour at Hershey, Pennsylvania. We did a couple of the quick uh, quick hit things in Philadelphia. I beat my sister in a race up the, the stairs of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, being a, a big fan of the Rocky series. Uh we asked some, I think it was, it was either policemen or road workers, but in any event, we asked a group of guys where to go for the best cheesesteaks. We did that. Um, like I said, made our way south, and uh, I think that was, that might be about it. We, we stayed a night in Delaware, and not to hearken to the Wayne's World scene of, hey, we're in Delaware. I know it was pretty pretty where we were, sort of near some water, and just walking around when we had a little bit of time, but I'd say that. It was, like I said, we, we had a destination, but the the five or six stops and destinations in between were almost equally memorable. Well, all great memories, guys. Thanks for sharing. Now we want to hear from our listeners. Uh, please go ahead and share your most memorable road trip with us. You can email us at safehealth at nsc.org, or you can check in online with the hashtag SafesidePopQuiz on social media. We want to say thanks to everyone out there for spending a little time with us today. If you want to keep your employees, your colleagues, and your family members safe, we have just the publication for you, Family Safety and Health. Each issue is packed with helpful tips that will keep family safe at home and in the community, along with informational articles about your health. To get a free copy or learn more, visit our new website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com family, or subscribe by calling 800-621-7619. If you'd like to share some feedback, Email us at safehealth at nsc.org to find stories such as my story on safety incentives, as well as the latest news about safety and health. Visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Original music for this podcast was provided by Steve Maslin. Thank you, Steve. We'll be back next month with another episode to have more safety-related discussion, talk to trusted voices around the profession, and hopefully make you smile. In the meantime, feel free to tell a fellow safety pro about this podcast and please stay on the safe side. Mm-hmm.